Matthew chapter 5, we continue in the series of uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. There's never been a greater sermon than the one Jesus preached by the Sea of Galilee. This was on his first Galilee tour. He was ejected from his hometown of Nazareth. They didn't like what he said in the synagogue. They rode him out on a rail. They tried to kill him. It wasn't his time. Leaving Nazareth, he adopted Capernaum for his base of ministry and hometown. And branching out from Capernaum, he went from village to village, town to town, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, working miracles, in many cases emptying whole villages of those who were sick, just healing everybody. Some great multitudes followed him. The Bible says in verse 25 of the previous chapter there, chapter 4, great, there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, from Decapolis that had been on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, the Gentile region, from Jerusalem, from Judea, from beyond Jordan. I'm telling you, this peasant rabbi was creating quite a sensation. For many, it was a blessed thing. He, he was a blessing to them, but for others, like the scribes and the Pharisees, he was a bane. They hated him already, and he was barely getting started with his ministry. So we need to realize that as we read these words. Chapter 5, beginning with the Beatitudes and then getting into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Our text for today is verses 38 through 42. If you'll follow along, I'll read aloud. Jesus said, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, we're, we're used to that now, aren't we? But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, thy inner tunic, let him have thy cloak, outer coat also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, go two miles. Verse 42, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. Jesus does here what he had done with the previous points of the message he dispels the false notions that the Pharisees had interpolated onto the law. And then once he destroys that false foundation, he builds the true. He's talking about the spiritual nature of the kingdom of God. This is a sermon. Every sermon has an introduction, a text, a body, and a conclusion. Maybe sometimes you don't know when I go from one to the other. Sometimes I don't either. But the introduction is the Beatitudes. The text is verse 20. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he gets into the body of the message with the verses we've been in for some time, talking about and it has these, the body of the message has six points that follow the template. Ye have heard that it hath been said, and then he follows up, but I say unto you. And when he does that, he drops a bomb every time. 
This is the master teacher. This is his MO, his modus operandi. He says, in effect, you have heard it said, he said, that's your system. But I say unto you, that's God's system. To summarize what we've looked at so far, he says, you think it's not enough not to kill, but God says don't even get angry with your brother. You think it's enough not to commit adultery. God says you shouldn't even think lustful thoughts in your heart. You think it's enough to do the paperwork when you get a divorce, but God says don't even get a divorce except it be for fornication. He doesn't mandate it then. He permits it. You think it's enough that you put an oath behind your word, but God says everything you say ought to be true so that you don't even need an oath. And now in our text today, he says you think it's enough to give equal vengeance, to give eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, tit for tat, we would say. God says you shouldn't be taking vengeance at all. Pretty shattering. But Jesus had a way of doing that. So far he's dealt with the issues of hatred, then he moves on to impurity, and then to lying, and now he comes to the issue of revenge and retaliation, something that just doesn't, it does come naturally, but the opposite does not come naturally to us. Here again, the Pharisees perverted the law of Moses to justify their taking personal revenge. As I said already, Jesus follows the now familiar pattern of destroying confidence in a self-made Judaism and reasserting God's true intent and divine standard. By the way, Christ exemplifies and expects a higher standard from us than the Pharisees. And unless we attain to this righteousness that he's talking about, we're no better than the Pharisees. This higher standard just nips in the bud the natural desire to insist on our rights. And in our day, we're just bombarded with that in the news, people standing up for their rights, redefining things, reproductive rights. Are you kidding? Insisting on our rights to justify ourselves, and then we blame others. And the only way that we will rise higher then that fleshly standard is to have the love of Christ and the Spirit of God gripping our hearts. Otherwise, there's no, we're just going to be like everybody else. We just go with the flow. What is Christ teaching here? How does He expect us to carry it out? Aren't these pretty sky-high demands? Yeah. So we'll talk about it under three headings. First of all, Christ's overarching point. There's a purpose that He's giving, even from the law. There's an overarching point. This fifth of six points can be boiled down to this. Don't retaliate. Don't resist evil. The Apostle Paul was speaking in the same vein as Jesus here when he said in Romans 12, verse 17, recompense to no man evil for evil, period. You say easier said than done. Yeah, right. You're right. We come into this world screaming for our rights. 
we instinctively want to give one who offends us a dose of their own medicine. We don't have to be taught to play the blame game. God is going to have to remake us if we would willingly become guilty that others will go free. It's a big point. It's a huge point. It's a misunderstood point. Jesus' point here is impossible for those who aren't Christians. And so he really is referring to the same people that he just described in the Beatitudes to fulfill this fifth command. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit and they do not think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. They are helplessly dependent upon the mercy of God. They are the ones who mourn over their own sin. They compare themselves to God's standard, not to the standard of men around us. They're meek. Instead of insisting on their rights and, the, and certain entitlements and expectations, they just leave everything to God. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. There's something intrinsically beautiful about holiness to them, whether they, it advances their case temporarily or not. Only such as are described in the Beatitudes can possibly fulfill this command, resist not evil. Recompense to no man evil for evil. But Jesus is not saying something impossible for true believers. This is not just an ideal. This is a command. You know, he is not teaching that pacifism, he's not teaching that it's wrong for a nation to take up arms or fight a just war. We'll say more about that. Now, the world, the nations that are in the world, they fall under the authority of God. They're accountable to God and to His law. The divine justice that restrains and regulates and creates order out of chaos, as we've been talking about in the previous points of this sermon, is applicable to everyone, but only those who are born again can fulfill this command. Jesus is not talking to governments here. He's talking to individuals. Governments cannot deal with the heart. All that governments can do is restrain outward behavior. And that's important, and that's their God-given function. But only God can transform the heart. This directive is not only impossible for non-Christians, it's premature for legalistic Christians. And right then I've got your attention. You say, isn't that an oxymoron? What do I mean by that? There are some believers who are still under the law. Please listen carefully. And you're going to have to really think with me this morning, as I often say, if, if you checked your brain in at the door... I'll give you a minute to go back and get it, all right? We really have to think because a lot of sloppy thinking is taking place with this passage. There are some believers who are still under the law, at least in some areas, not necessarily overall. Does that mean they're trying to work their way to heaven? No. If you were to ask them, are you trusting in your good works, your morality? I believe they could honestly say, no, I'm not. I'm trusting in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. 
They're saved, no doubt about it. But here, listen, there's still something lawless in their lives and hearts that has to be controlled by fear of judgment. For them, the grace of God has not yet kicked in in their lives in that area. This will help you understand the New Testament. The New Testament teaches that until a man comes under grace, he must be kept under the law. Then one day he dies to the law and the Spirit takes over. And now he is under grace, at least in a direct, certain direction or in a certain area. You're looking at me like a calf at a new gate. I've got to explain myself. Think of the Apostle Paul. Converted on the road to Damascus. Does anybody here think he didn't really get saved on the road to Damascus? Would you raise your hand? I guess we're all agreed that he did. He was, up until that time, zealous for the law. He was keeping it outwardly. He was a good Pharisee, even before his conversion. He lived in all good conscience before God. He wrote Romans chapter 7, and he describes himself after his conversion, not before. And he says in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, and I've talked about this before, but it's still so hard for some to understand. He said, for the, when the, uh, the, the commandment came, sin revived and I died. I was alive without the law once, but then the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What in the world did he mean? When he talks about the commandment came, listen carefully, the spiritual meaning, the heart attitude for the commandment that Jesus describes right here in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what got him. As a Christian, it slew him, he said. The tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. And he had to die to it, to that root sin. And then the Spirit of Christ took over. Beloved, this is so much misunderstood in our day, and as, as, as a result, we have a misunderstanding of grace. Some are pervert, they err on one side or the other, either antinomianism or, or legalism. The point that Jesus is making is this, and the law of Moses really supports it. The law can only be fulfilled in us when we walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It's amazing how some people, some Christians, when they come to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that says that, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. They want to stop right there. The verse doesn't stop there. Some translations take it out because it just seems it doesn't belong there. There's therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That belongs there. Until then, the law still applies. This is what accounts for Paul's language to both the Romans and to the Galatians. In Romans chapter 6, verse 14, in fact, I want you to see that. Keep your finger in Matthew 5. I do want you to see this for yourself. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, he's talking about the previous verse, yielding yourselves unto God, not yielding your members, your bodily members as instruments of unrighteousness, but yielding yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead 
And then he says in verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under what, class? Grace. When you've yielded your members as dead, but are alive from the dead. Likewise, he tells the confused Galatians, in Galatians 5.18, just jot that reference down, but if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Are we always led by the Spirit in everything? No. I wish we were. May the Lord give us discernment in all things. There's so much confusion here. Once you see the overarching purpose, point Jesus is making. Now I want you to see the underlying principles of what he's saying here in this passage. Matthew chapter 5, 38 through 42. Once we understand the purpose of the Mosaic legislation and how it was perverted by the legalistic Pharisees, then we can focus on the relevant biblical principles that are involved. I think you would agree with me. The Bible does not contradict itself. He said, I hope you would. Come back tonight and you'll see the consistency of the Bible and the authoritativeness of it. The Bible does not contradict itself. In particular, Jesus does not contradict Moses, though the Pharisees tried to pit him against Moses. Paul does not contradict Jesus. Now, we dare not build a doctrine on an isolated or obscure passage, but the Bible does not contradict itself. God is clear when He speaks. He doesn't stutter when He talks. He wants us to decipher what He is saying. If only we'll have a surrendered will, John 7, 17, and we're willing to study the Scriptures. Some people are mentally lazy and won't do that. What is Jesus' frame of reference here in verses 38 and 39? When he said, ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. Well, right, here's some underlying principles, and you've got to understand these or you'll miss this, what Jesus is saying. First of all, there's the underlying principle of forbidding a punishment that is excessive to the crime. How many of you would agree with me that a parent who locks up his or her child for a week because they were too loud at the dinner table with guests around is excessive? How many of you would say that's kind of, yeah, yeah, that's going too far. And you know, God is not that kind of a tyrant either. He's concerned about the punishment being commensurate for the crime. There are three places in the Old Testament where we read these words, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. The first one is found in Exodus 21, 24. You need not turn there. I will have you turn to the third one in a moment. But in that passage, it says, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And the whole point of that passage is if a man strikes someone and knocks out his eye or his tooth, he's not to be killed for that. The punishment must fit the crime and not be in excess of it. Same principle is stated in the second place where this phrase is found in the Old Testament, and that's within the context of capital punishment in Leviticus 24, verse 20. Leviticus 24, 20, if a man takes a life, he must pay for it with his own life. Capital punishment is taught in the Bible. So if he causes a blemish or a disfigurement of someone else's body, the Bible says in this passage, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Notice the passive voice. Someone is acting on this person. He's not doing the acting. Who is it? Who is it that's administrating the justice? Is it the 
victim's family? Is it the, a group of vigilantes from the neighborhood? No. If you read the passage, and I know I'm not having you turn to this one, but uh, trust me here, it's the whole congregation at the direction of their God-appointed civil leader, Moses. That's who's doing the action, who's doing the judging. The third time this phrase is found, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, I do want you to see that, is in Deuteronomy chapter 19. If you'll turn there, Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. It's so clear here. But notice what verse 18 first. Verse 18, and the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely, thus shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So judges are involved. And then this quote, the, the, the words that Jesus quotes in, in Matthew 5, 30, 39, verse 21, And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The judges are the ones that will enforce this. Those who witness it will hear and fear and henceforth commit no more any such evil among you, God says in verse 20. Now, question, is God a forgiving and merciful God? Yes, but does He still expect government and judges and magistrates to enforce principles of righteousness? Yes. God did not instruct the judges here to tell this perpetrator, and you'll see my purpose for saying this, uh, well, uh, you know, the, uh, the God's divine mind about this is be forgiving, and so we're going to forgive you 70 times 7. You can go ahead and do it 489 more times. That's about how ridiculous some people are with their pacifism. The word justice in the Old Testament is primarily the word mishpat in the Hebrew. It is commonly translated justice. What does mishpat mean? Here's what the writer and apologist Greg Kokel, a great apologist by the way, said. He said, justice means exacting an appropriate payment for a crime. No payment, no justice. By the way, we need to hear that and think about that because we keep hearing this term social justice in our day, and it's caused us to be confused as to what biblical justice really is. Biblical justice is not the social justice of our day. The social justice of our day has been has redefined the idea of justice in the minds of many to mean this, the tearing down of traditional structures and systems deemed to be oppressive and the redistribution of power and resources from oppressors to victims in the pursuit of equality of outcome. That's a fair definition. That's not a biblical definition of justice. That's a definition of social justice today comes from a guy named Scott Allen who wrote a great book in 2020, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. But I was just throwing that in as an aside because it is relevant. But the primary application I want to make at this point is this, God is holy and just. 
but we must never forget that He delights in mercy. There's a great hymn we often sing when we have the Lord's table together, and it, says like, it goes like this, there's a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. There's a kindness in His justice which is more than liberty. Aren't you glad that though God is just and holy, and He doesn't compromise on sin, He still doesn't throw the book at us when we sin? Aren't you glad He doesn't just consume us because our God is a consuming fire? Never doubt that for a moment. But when we sin, He doesn't go berserk. He he doesn't go beyond. His justice reflects His mercy. Listen to the Word of God. Let the goodness of God lead us to repentance. That's what leads a man to repentance. It's not God's stringency. Job 11, verse 6, Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity requireth. Amen. Psalm 103, 8, verse 10, you probably know these verses. We, we recite them almost every Thanksgiving. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will He keep His anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. He hath not rewarded us according to our iniquities. A little bit further down, verse 13, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. I'm so glad that's true. Listen to Isaiah 57, verse 6, where God speaks to an idolatrous and adulterous Israel, and He says this, For I will not contend with thee forever, neither will I be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. God's dealt pretty stringently with Israel. Look at all the pogroms and holocausts over the years. But He's still been merciful to her. He knows what He's created. He knoweth our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Oh, how restrained our God is. Don't accuse Him otherwise, even when we grievously offend Him. We need to be melted in our hearts by His restraint instead of lashing out and getting angry at Him and saying, that's not fair or wallowing in self-pity when God chastens us. There's the underlying principle that forbids the punishment to be greater than the crime. There's a second principle, and that is a focus on personal, not political relationships. Whenever we hear that biblical allusion, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, what do we think? Well, the way we would say it would be, tit for tat. And that's probably an expression that has morphed from what it was originally in the 1500s. Tit for tat probably comes from the words tip for tap or blow for blow that refers to equivalent retaliation. The more formal Latin term would be lex Talionis, maybe you've seen that, lex talionis, which means equal punishment for the same crime. It literally means the law of compensation. Jesus is talking about personal level here, not political, when He says in verse 39, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. And then He gives some illustrations which we'll get into. 
Now, somebody's bound to say this, so I'll just go ahead and say it anyway. Does that mean we're to be a doormat? <laughs> no. Do you think Jesus was a doormat when he took a scourge of small cords and drove out the money changers in the temple? But yet on the cross, he let wicked men do their worst to him and retaliated not a bit. He asserts his authority here and he says, but I say unto you that resist not evil. Is this for governments? No. Governments are to resist evil. Governments are to discourage evil, punish evil. Is this for the church as a whole? No. In some cases, the church is to impose church discipline. Are wrong and sin not to be punished? No. But the traditional teaching of eye for an eye that is found three times in the Old Testament does not reply to personal revenge. It applies only to the legal system. The divine regulation for our personal relationships is, and as always has been, what Jesus lays down here, resist not evil. And we need to hear this as independent, fundamental Baptists. In our age of enlightenment, 2023, we must absolutely understand that human relationships and law courts are two distinct categories. And failure to distinguish has led to extreme pacifism on one side, anarchy on the other. They actually run together. Probably the most notorious example in recent history, the foremost proponent of this is the very well-known, renowned writer, Count Leo Tolstoy, who is best known for his Russian novels, War and Peace, wrote several others, and in his novels, he interprets Christ's words here at face value and in an absolute sense. Tolstoy says that to have soldiers or police or magistrates was patently unchristian. Every government, every individual is just to slay people with kindness and leniency. That is valid on a personal level, but it is not on a political or legal level. By the way, Leo Tolstoy himself, that book, War and Peace, is one of the longest novels. It's humongous. Uh, if you read 300 words a minute, it'll still take you 15 hours to read that book. Tolstoy himself became the tragic victim of his own mistaken reasoning. His marriage was a tragic failure. His life was a contradiction of his principles. He died a miserable man, yet he continues to exert influence on uh, politicians and writers and others. Let's not go by Tolstoy, let's go by Jesus. So as far as law courts and government are concerned, they are to operate on the basis of 
lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. As far as human, personal relationships are concerned, love and forgiveness are the rule. One involves crime. The other presents an opportunity to overcome evil with good by forbearing our personal rights. And where Tolstoy and the Jews and the Pharisees and Mahatma Gandhi and many other pacifists missed it is that they took Lex Talionis out of the courts and put it in their own personal lives. And they justified revenge and vendettas and retaliation. No, the mandate for our own personal lives is Christ's words in verse 39, resist not evil. And then he goes on to say, turn the other cheek. We'll talk about that. Give a man your cloak as well as your tunic. Go the second mile. And again, I say, those things do not come naturally to us. It demands, and I come to my third sub-point, demanding Christ-like self-denial. What is the root problem that Jesus is addressing here? He's been dealing with root problems. He's been dealing with the root problem of hatred. He's been dealing with the root problem of lust and the root problem of lying. So what is the root problem here? It is our attitude towards self. With these words, Jesus exposed how self-centered we naturally are. Especially against the backdrop of his own utter selflessness. Jesus made himself of no reputation. He did not resist arrest or unjust trial or sentencing to death. It's interesting that one of the main verses that tells us that is written by Peter. In 1 Peter 2.23, referring to Christ, who when he was, was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Don't you think when Peter wrote those words, maybe there was just a little twinge of shame and remorse and regret as he remembered that he himself was the one who whacked off a guy's ear in personal revenge? The truth is, beloved, we all need the help of the Holy Spirit to kill this noxious root of retaliation and the seeking of revenge that stubbornly persists in our hearts. Let me prove that it persists in all of our hearts. If I were to ask you who is the greatest person who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ, probably the majority of you would say the Apostle Paul, and I would agree with you. But do you know his sin is recorded? A grievous sin. He was back in Jerusalem, appearing before the high priest Ananias. And the apostle Paul, the great godly man that he was, reverted back to his old fleshly days as Saul of Tarsus. And when Ananias instructed some standing by Paul to smite him on the mouth, I mean, on the mouth somebody just punched him good. Paul lost it. He gave a knee-jerk Saul of Tarsus reaction, and he said, God shall smite you, you whited wall, you painted wall. Do you realize what he was saying? He was calling Ananias a hypocrite and asking God to damn him. I'm not exaggerating, folks. Paul did that. Now, he said he didn't realize he was the high priest. And he showed his true greatness by admitting he had done wrong. 
But contrast that with Jesus, who in the same circumstance, appearing before another high priest by the name of Caiaphas, when one of the officers struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, did he react in anger? Oh, no. His response was, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if I have spoken well, why do you smite me? What a different spirit from even the great apostle. So I ask you, if the apostle Paul had problems with feelings rising within him of revenge, do you think maybe it kind of comes naturally to us too? We all have that sinful tendency. We all have that tendency when we feel cornered to lash out at others, to blame them. Hey, we get it honestly from our first parents, don't we? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you've heard it said, it's true. Adam blamed Eve, said to God, the woman thou gavest me. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, right? So we just naturally blame others. We just lash out. What we desperately need every day is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. As you often hear me say, well, the first thing I see when I stagger into the bathroom and try to focus my eyes is this plaque that says, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. And I say, Lord, I want you, give me Jesus. Let him be my sweet temper. Let him be my righteousness, my purity today. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary to India many years ago, a number of years ago, who spent 52 years without a furlough, working with children that were taken advantage of and abused horribly. She said this, A cup full of sweet water cannot spill out even one drop of bitter water, no matter how severely jolted. You know what our need is? To be filled with the sweet water that only Jesus can put in. The nature of Christ. But I want you to see not only the underlying principles, the overarching point, but thirdly and lastly, the far-reaching practice the far-reaching practice by way of application. If one picture is worth a thousand words, as we've often heard, then surely a good illustration is worth a lot of lecturing. I'll put it that way. And Jesus follows his sermon here with four illustrations by way of application. These illustrations are not exhaustive. They're not, not the only instances, but they're representative. He's been dealing in general principles so far, but now he gets into the details. And my time is almost gone, it's after 12, so I'll be quick, just cite these things briefly. The first area is dignity, dignity in the latter half of verse 39, but I say unto you that resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee shall strike you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why does he say the right cheek? Is that just arbitrary? No. If you examine the culture of the day, the ultimate insult was to take the right hand, which most people were right-handed, take the back hand and smack somebody. So if you're in front of them, you're going to hit their right cheek. You're not going to go like this. And Jesus said, if that happens, don't retaliate. Turn the left cheek. 
And by the way, he practiced what he preached. Because the Bible says in Isaiah that, that he would give his back to the smiters and his cheeks, plural, to them that plucked out the hair. And so we read in Romans 12, 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Do you think we can trust a holy God to vindicate us in his time and way? Yes. I like what Spurgeon said. <laughs> we have an advocate, and therefore we don't need to plead our own cause. It doesn't come natural. When the grace of God grips our hearts, this is the way we'll respond. Maybe you've read a little bit about an eccentric guy who became a great soul-winning evangelist in the 1800s in England. His name was Billy Bray. He was a coal miner, and he was a star prize fighter before he was wonderfully, dramatically converted. After he got saved, another coal miner with whom he'd worked for years, who had a mortal dread of Billy because he knew how good a boxer he was, upon hearing of his conversion, he walked up to him and just smacked him as hard as he could. It knocked him unconscious for a minute or two on the ground. And when Billy Bray came to, he looked at his assailant, and this is what he said, may God forgive you even as I forgive you. The rest of the story relates that the man was thrown into such an agony of mind and heart that shortly thereafter he was converted himself. Well, I've got my rights. <laughs> A man has his dignity, you know. Let's just take what Jesus said. Second area is security. Jesus expands in verse 40. I'm paraphrasing. He says, if someone sues you and takes away your inner tunic, a long piece of underclothing, let him have your coat, your outer tunic also. Now, you have to understand this in the context of, of the customs of the day. It had been that way for a long time. According to Exodus 22, if you took a man's outer tunic as a pledge, as a security, you had to return it by sundown. Because he... If you took that as a pledge, he was probably a poor man, and he needed it for warmth. So what's the principle that endures to this day? If you're litigated, and the one suing you takes your proverbial shirt off your back, the one item of security that you feel you're entitled to, what you ought to do is throw in your coat, too. That's what Jesus said. That'll disarm the guy. He's not prepared for that. In fact, Jesus said we shouldn't even take our brothers to court, fellow believers. We should be willing rather to be defrauded. I don't see that happening. I don't see that verse being followed a lot in our day. Dignity, security. The third area is liberty. Verse 41 is where we get the expression, the second mile. Isn't that something? Two common expressions are find their roots right here in, in this chapter, turning the other cheek, going the second mile, both of them found here. Jesus said that if somebody compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Where did that come from? Well, according to the Roman law in the day of Christ, Romans were in charge of Palestine or the land of Israel. 
According to Roman law, if a soldier conscripted you and told you to carry his baggage, you were obligated to do it for one mile. Anybody. Jesus said, do it for two. And that way you'll overcome evil with good. You'll dumbfound him. Make yourself a servant to him. By the way, and I'm just hastening because our time is gone. What if God only went the first mile for us? What if Jesus only agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane for you, but he didn't die on the cross? Aren't you glad that Romans 8.32 is something we can come back to? For God who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So there's dignity, security, liberty. The final area is property. Verse 42 is somewhat of a summarizing statement, but it mentions property specifically. Give to him that asketh thee, Jesus says, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. I think the important criterion here is to understand that this is someone in genuine need. This is not just a professional beggar. And so the words of 1 John 3, 17 and 18 apply here. I'll just quote this and then I'm done. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. May God help us to be self-sacrificingly generous. Listen, what do ye more than others if we don't? How can we commend Christianity to the unsaved world around us if it doesn't make us any different in the way we respond than they do? Where's Jesus going with this? Well, we'll see this next week. I'll throw out a teaser, okay? Verse 44, but I say unto you, love your enemies. The rest of the world doesn't do that. No other religion espouses that. How in the world can we do that? Come back next week and I'll tell you. Now, I'll just say it this way. How in the world can we do that when everything inside us rebels against us, against it? I'll tell you how. Because God has lavished His love upon us when we were His enemies. That's how we can do that. Let's pray. Father, we confess we don't naturally do what Jesus commanded us to do here. We need Your help. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, long-suffering. We need the loving and forgiving heart of Jesus. And Lord, as you break our hearts and pour in your grace, would you use that to disarm and break the hearts of the unsaved around us? May they see the love of Jesus expressed, not just in our words, but in our actions and in our reactions.
Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll sing.